just realized that my uh, microphone's been on this whole time, so hope you could not hear how much I was enjoying singing. It is a joy to hear your voice uh, today. Uh, I, like anyone else, find myself uh, weak and weary, worn out, and uh, just what a joy to hear you sing today. What a ministry to me. I have a lot of things to say today, as I usually do. A few things you could say. I hope that you remember one thing today. You can write this in all caps. You can make this the first, the last sentence that you write today if you're taking notes. I hope that everything I say today in some way supports this encouragement to you, church. You do not have to be afraid. God will provide. You do not have to be afraid. God will provide. There are a lot of things happening in this little section tucked in the middle of some big sections in the book of Acts. A lot of things happening here. But I think this is one of the things, if not the main thing, that it would mean for the hearers who hear Acts to hear, that they don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid because if you're looking for your points, here they are. God knows. God cares. And God provides through His church. God knows. God cares. God provides through His church. So you don't have to be afraid. I think one of the things that I've wrestled with fearing over the years, less so recently, but some for a while there, uh, was just that something bad is about to happen. I grew up with a, a pretty easy childhood in East Texas. Family really never wanted uh, for food or daily necessities. Uh, relatives who passed away, mostly passed away from old age. I had a few tragedies of some maybe outside my closest circle of friends in high school, but never really experienced as the kind of tragedy that I experienced from, I hear from so many others. And as I began to look through the Bible over the years, I just came to realize God, that brings a lot of things into a lot of people's lives for a lot of reasons. And sometimes I just wondered, maybe today will be the day that one of those life-defining tragedies is about to happen. There's certainly nothing that I've done to keep me from deserving or not deserving any of those things. How do I know today won't be the day? How do I know today won't be the day I don't get that phone call that so many other families have gotten? Maybe you felt like that yourself. Maybe you lived in fear. Maybe you're, you're doing some math at home. Maybe you're gone to the doctor. Maybe, maybe you read the news. Maybe you felt like your worst fears are already coming true. I think one of the things we learn from the church in Antioch in Jerusalem is that we don't have to be afraid. That God will provide. We don't have to be afraid. God will provide all that we need. When you think about the church in Antioch, there's these narratives of baptisms and 
Peter and Cornelius and Paul's conversion. Then we have this little section on the, it's kind of like a little origin story of the church in Antioch. Why? Why why would we stop and hear about the church in Antioch? A few things. It was a, a major city located in trade routes between Egypt, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, Mesopotamia, and later then Armenia and India. It was a high-trafficked, large city. It was the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire, only behind Rome itself and Alexandria and Egypt. It became the sending church for Paul. It gets much more attention in the book of Acts, what this church is doing and who's going in and out of this church. So it makes sense that Luke would want to introduce us to the church, but especially for the Jewish community. Back in Jerusalem, those who'd become Christians... Antioch would have represented a a far away distant land where the gospel had gone and a large church had sprung up. Antioch is about 300 plus miles from Jerusalem. So if you're going to walk there, I think we're looking at 15, 20 days, something like that, 20 20 mile days, something like that. To to hear of a church springing up there would have been like hearing a 10,000 person church kind of birthing overnight in Shanghai, China for the very first time. It's far away, it's foreign. And for the Christian Jews in Jerusalem, it would have been a Gentile church. People that they were had customs not to even interact with, we saw in Peter's testimony in chapter 10. It's a central Gentile church. It's going to serve a great lesson of God's care for the church. It serves a great lesson of God's care for the church and its origin and its relation to the church in Gentile. In Gentile. So in this birthing of the Antioch church and the relationship with Jerusalem church, we're going to see that God knows, God cares, God provides for the church through the church. First, just consider that it is God who knows. It's God who knows what's going on and what the needs are in the local church. Acts chapter 11, verse 28, one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And this took place during the days of Claudius. I want you to know what this means. This means first that God has knowledge of this before Agabus does and before Jerusalem does and before Antioch does. The Spirit is giving the word to Agabus that a disaster is coming. And it was not the prophet who knew first. It was God. And I wonder if you aren't some, some ways becoming your spirit like a teenager. As a Christian, you've just begun to think that no one really knows anything but you. Let me just encourage you not to trust any other person's knowledge in the world more than God's knowledge of you and the world. More than your Enneagram. As one pastor would say, if you can't say amen, you have to say ouch. Instead of your horoscope. More than your gifts test. More than the farmer's almanac. Scrap the social media personality test. God knows what tomorrow holds. You never walk into a room that God has not been into first. Agabus the prophet was not skilled in reading the stars. 
He was not trained in meteorology or dark magic. Agabus, very simply, it says, foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine. The Holy Spirit of God gave him an impression, an inclination, a word that there would be a famine. And Luke adds this took place during the days of Claudius. Why add that historical fact? For one, probably to, to verify Agabus as, as having a, a, a faithful prophetic word from God. He didn't just run around and say, there's going to be a famine, there's going to be a famine. You know, like the sky's falling. But he actually had a prophetic word about a historical event that you can go look in his history books and see there was that famine in the days of Claudius. If no famine had come, you could have looked at uh, Agabus and said, no, I don't, I don't really trust you, bro. And if Agabus was not really a true prophet of the Lord, Israel had laws about that in Jerusalem. It was death penalty. So later readers can confirm Agabus had foreknowledge about what he knew. We, know, we now know as history. It was God that gave it to him by the Spirit. Knowledge of past, present, and future is a characteristic of God that no one else has. God knows past, present, future entirely equally. No one is like God in this way. It's called omniscience, all-knowing. I highly encourage you to go look and find A.W. Tozer's book on the attributes of God. He has some helpful sentences in there when it comes to the omniscience of God. He says God's perfect is God's knowledge, excuse me, is perfect. He knows everything. And if he didn't, what would that mean about him as God? His knowledge is perfect, therefore he has no need to learn. He has no need to learn. And if God's knowledge is perfect, he doesn't need to learn anything. That means his knowledge about problem A and problem B is equal. God is not more knowledgeable about anything that's going on across the ocean than he is what's going on in Austin. He doesn't know anything better than he knows the other thing. And for that matter, God's never forgotten anything and then remembered it. Oh, you know what? I forgot about that whole famine thing. But I, uh, you know, I just remembered. I forgot to put it on my calendar, but I remember. God doesn't learn. He doesn't forget. And then remember, he doesn't know anything better than he knows the other thing. He knows everything perfectly. And the prophets testify, this is part of what makes God God. Unique in the universe. Isaiah 46, verse 8 through 9 says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Talking about Israel. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. That's a profound statement as the book of Isaiah is foretelling Israel's exile 150 years in advance. No one else can do that. There is no limit to his foreknowledge. God warned Noah about the flood. God told Abraham that his descendants would go into Egypt for 400 years. And this is the testimony about God over and over and over and over. He knows even when no one else knows. He knows when no one else knows. 
When Israel was in captivity in Egypt and crying out to God because of their slavery and their hardship in Exodus chapter 2, it says very simply, he heard their cries, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Christians, we are not open theists. We take comfort in knowing that while the secret things belong to God and He does not always reveal them as He did through Agabus and as He might today, He knows all the secret things, even if He keeps them secret to Himself. They belong to Him. God knows. You don't have to be afraid. God knows. You don't don't ever have to go into prayer and tell God anything to inform Him about what's going on in your life. He knows. And second, God cares. God cares. Yeah, He knows, but what's He going to do with that? Well, He cares. God knows and He cares. This is the testimony of God toward His people at all times. Let it sink into your heart and mind that God cares. God's care for you begins in Himself. His care begins with caring for you in regards to things you did not know you needed to care about because they are still in the future. God knows things in the future that you need that God is thinking about now, but you don't know you're going to need. And He's caring for them. He cares about you. Christians, church, there's something in the future that God not only knows about, but cares about in your future. Something you don't know. The book of Isaiah, as I mentioned, is written to exiles at least 150 years before Israel actually went into exile. But God knew. He knew they would sin. He knew they would go into exile. And God knew that when they got into exile, they would struggle to trust if He cares for them. He knew that when they got into the wilderness, when they got into Babylon, they were going to struggle to trust His covenant love for them. So listen to what God says in Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49, verse 13 through 15. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my God has forgotten me. To which God replies, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Now, no shade to any mom who's ever you know, left a child at church accidentally. But God's even saying, look, a, a mom will not gonna, is not going to leave her infant sitting around, will she? Almost left my son at home. That's neither here nor there today. But God says, listen, even these, even a mom like that, they might forget. The strongest bond you can see on earth, they, that mom might forget their son discard them, not care about them. But what does God say? Yet I will never forget you. The most tender, the most intimate, the most trusted, the most crucial. A mom might forget a son, but I will never forget you. 
don't say that I have forsaken you or forgotten you. This is part of the message from Agabus to the prophet to Jerusalem. The famine is coming. This has happened again and again through the history of the people of Israel at the center of the narrative of Joseph. I'm so thankful for a brother that I had coffee with this week. I was talking about the sermon. He goes, that sounds like Joseph. I'm like, yeah, it does. It's helpful. It fits a pattern of God's people facing famine at multiple critical times in their salvation history. At the center of the, of a, the, the narrative of Joseph is that there's a famine coming and Joseph's brothers had kicked him out and you know, left him for dead. But God's providence was that Joseph was raised up into power in Egypt. And when it came time for there to be a famine, well, guess where Joseph was? He was there, second in command. They could go to him. They would get food from him. The famine was coming in the desert. And where did God take Joseph? Straight into luxurious Egypt. And it sure came in handy for them. Christians, God does not forget about you. Christians, God cares about you. Abacus' prophecy is a message that God knows and cares. There's a famine and wants you to know, so God sends word through prophets in the church. Hasn't God sent Christ to die for you? Just think about this. Hasn't Christ, God sent Christ to die for you? If you ever forget that God cares for you, you, you might go without, you might miss a meal. You, you might have cancer that doesn't get healed. You might not have every need met the way you want all the needs met, but if you can think about this, you will never forget that God cares for you. Has God sent Jesus as a man on the earth, as his son, to die for your sins? Has he done that for you? Then don't you think he cares about everything else? But that's the most important thing that he could give us. That's what Romans says in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's not like God's holding things behind his back. I'm going to give you Jesus, but I'm going to keep all the other things that you need behind my back just to make you trust me. God's not holding anything behind his back. He's not keeping anything from us. The Sermon on the Mount is what we read this morning from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. The Gentiles seek after those things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows that you need those things. So what can you do? What can you do? You seek first the kingdom of God, preaching of the gospel, the worship of God, righteousness in your life, obedience to God in your life. And what does Jesus say? All these things will be added to you. God will take care of you. And God will do this by His personal provision. God knows. God cares. He's the one who's going to add these things. He will provide. God actually does something about it. God doesn't just know, and He doesn't just care and have some emotions and some feelings about what's going on in the famine. He is the one who does something. Acts chapter 11, verse 27 through 30. And I hope you will note, this is the third week in a row now where one of our main points is the providence of God. So be forewarned, it could continue. Acts 11, 27 through 30. God sovereignly sees to the care of the church. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of those named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. 
So that's God putting it in the prophet's heart to send to the church in Jerusalem, which got then to the church in Antioch. Look what happens in Antioch when the church in Antioch, these 300 miles away, 15, 20 days of walking away, when those disciples who've never met anyone from Jerusalem, perhaps, never, you know, they're not connected, they're not part of the same church planning network yet. I mean, they are, but you see what I'm saying. Verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Well, this is not disconnected from the providence of the previous verses, verses 19 through 26. The church in Jerusalem is struggling. And the church in Antioch is being born. Paul is brought from Jerusalem to Antioch when that church begins to grow. And he stays there for a year. Meanwhile, what might have been going on for the year back in Jerusalem? Jerusalem is struggling. The the church, that is. They're persecuted. They're imprisoned there. They're scattered throughout all of Judea, as we saw in multiple passages. They've been kicked out of Jerusalem. This would be the time period where Jesus' words, it seems, are coming true. Where they're not even welcome at their own family's homes. Now on top of their unwelcomeness and their persecution, they're being pushed out of Jerusalem. There's going to be a famine there. There's going to be a scarcity of food, period. Where do you think Christians in Jerusalem would have ranked in regards to making sure everyone has food? Remember that Jesus knew what he was asking his disciples when he called them to follow him. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, I do not come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law. And person, that doesn't mean you can blame Jesus for all your mother-in-law problems, I'm just saying. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now surely that has begun to take effect in Jerusalem. Could it be that young Christians, newly wed couples, if they couldn't go home during the famine, they didn't have a home to go to where they were welcome. Might a single man have lost his job because he had committed to the Lord Jesus Christ in a Jewish community? Did some business persons get shut out of their market, maybe out of their economy? They certainly would have been the last thought of during a famine. We saw churches get treated like this during the pandemic in certain places in America, not so much in Texas, because it's Texas. But remember in the previous chapters, we saw similar experience in Jerusalem. There there was a, a growing from annoyance to anger to killing Stephen. Now they're killing Christians in Jerusalem. And then Paul comes on the scene, and Paul says, not enough to kill them when they're meeting out front at the temple, we've got to go to their house. We've got to go find the Christians and bring them into prison. And now in that environment, there's going to be a famine. What would be the word in the latter part of Acts 11 to the church? God provides. God provides. Remember, like when Israel was in the desert, God made food appear on the ground. God made water come out of the rock. God will see to it. But this time, God didn't know. God did not make water come out of the rock. He, he didn't make food 
appear on the ground every day. God made it so that food and money could come from Antioch, miraculously, to Jerusalem. Did you know that God provides like that? Did you know that, that God provides like that? That His knowledge becomes providence and He interacts and He provides for the church? If you knew it, have you forgotten it? Have you forgotten that this is what God does? He provides for His church? Have you doubted it? Maybe you knew it, you've been thinking about it, but you're just not even sure if it's actually true. Is God going to actually do that, provide for the church? You would do well to dwell on this today. God provides. He sees to it. He knows. He cares. He provides. Christians, we're not deists. Not only do we believe that God knows and that He cares, but that He intervenes in the affairs of the world. And in particular, He intervenes especially for the bride of Christ, for the church that Jesus secured with His own blood. He especially intervenes to care for them in myriad of ways in the world. What is Acts 11 and the provision of food for the church in Jerusalem, but an historical record of the outworking in Romans 8.35? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And what could some high interest rates and some rice shortages Does that possibly separate any of us from the love of Christ? Absolutely not. God knows, God cares, God provides. And He does this so very often through the church. He knows, He cares, He provides through the church. That's what happens in Acts 11.29. So the disciples determined everyone according to His ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. The disciples determined everyone, those in Antioch, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living down south in Judea. How did God care for the church's needs during the famine? He did it through the church. He made it aware to the church. And the church, who has been under Paul's teaching for a year, determined, well, we're going to take care of them. Notice it's not just the church, though. Part of the implication of this This narrative, it's not just the the local church caring for the local church, but it's the unified church around Jesus Christ. What in the world did Gentiles in Antioch and Jews in Jerusalem have to do with each other? They're so far away, they're so different in culture, they're enemies in some sense. One, One government is oppressing the other's people. They weren't friends, they were enemies. Remember that in the passages before, Peter told Cornelius, I'm not even supposed to be here, I'm not even supposed to come talk to you, it's against the law and customs. You might even remember that in the future, past this point going forward, Paul has to correct Peter because Peter would not sit with the Gentiles. And you know where that happened, that Peter came into the midst of the Gentiles and he wouldn't sit with them? Remember where that was? It was Antioch, of all places. I mean, pretty much the, one of the dominant churches in the Middle East in the first three to four centuries, Antioch. And when Peter got there, the first pope, for, you know, to some, he, wouldn't even, he was Gentiles, he wouldn't talk with them. You go back and read about it in Galatians 1 and 2. Somehow Peter made that 300-mile trek from Jerusalem to Antioch. When he got there, he wouldn't even sit down with the Gentiles to eat with them. And yet here are the Gentiles raising money to send down to care for 
the Christian Jews who are hungry during the famine. Peter wouldn't even eat with them, but they're sending down relief to make sure that they all have food. What would possibly bring that about? Well, Paul rebuked Peter for being unwilling to sit with them. Because that's not the gospel, Peter said. Uh, Paul said. That's not the gospel. Peter should have known better, as we all should. You know how easy it would have been for the Gentile Christians in Antioch to save the Christians down in Jerusalem 300 miles away? Is that even a real need? Who are they? Don't they have the apostles? Can't they do some miracles? Can't they make some bread to feed 5,000 people down there with all their signs and wonders with Peter and John and all those guys? It's a 15 days walk. How are we going to get food down there? How are we going to get money down there? They're separated by time, by distance, by culture and language. Two churches that have never met and one sends the other one money to feed them. What could possibly bring them together? What could possibly make them at Antioch want to care for the Christians in Jerusalem? In Acts 11, 20, verse 21, it tells us what happened. As the Jewish Christians were spread through the region, they were going and witnessing only to the Jews. But, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. There's a few who went there and decided we're not just going to preach only to the Jews and the Hebrew speakers, but to the Gentiles and the Hellenists. We're going to tell them about Jesus too. And in verse 21, what does it say happened? And the hand of the Lord was with them, with those preaching the gospel. And what happened when they preached the gospel? Because of the hand of the Lord was with them, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. What happened that would make the people in Antioch want to care about the people in Jerusalem? They became Christians. They turned their lives to the Lord. They heard the gospel that Jesus had died for them and they became part of the church. They were putting their faith and their trust in Jesus. So that united them with the church in Jerusalem even though they never met each other. It's not because they were a part of the same political group. It's not because they were in the same activist club or Facebook group. It's not because they were in some friendship or hobby club or they went to the movies together. Not because they were a social activist organization together. They were part of the body of Christ by being united to Jesus in their faith in Him. We are part of the local church, which means we are part of the body of Christ as a whole. All local churches who gather and affirm one another as having turned to the Lord Well, we are just as united with the church in Antioch and just as united with the church in Jerusalem and just as united with the church in Iran. Because we've all put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are one body of His together. Every true church of Jesus Christ is a gathering of those who have heard that Jesus is the Christ. You want to know what Millwood Baptist Church is about? We're not here to be Republicans. We're not here to be Democrats. We, we are not here to be a social organization. We're not here to be political or legal activists. We might have something to say about those. We might have something to do in all of those spheres. But the thing that we are is people have come to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and as we trust have been forgiven of our sins and are helping each other follow all of the commands that Jesus has given us. That's what we are. We might do many things, but that's what we are. That's what a local church is. See how it's through this unity and through the church that God provides for the church. 
How does God provide for the church in Jerusalem when the famine hits? It's incredible. It's from the Gentiles. The people, the Jews wouldn't even touch. They wouldn't. They got so. The, remember the Pharisees would get so mad when they saw Jesus eating with the Gentiles. And now the only way these Christian Jews in Jerusalem will have something to eat is because the Gentile church helped them. That's because Christ is the unifying factor. Now it's through unified love for Christ, unified faith in Christ, that believers are united in supporting one another financially. I want you to know this is the form that the church takes on throughout the New Testament. That God knows, God cares, God provides for the church through the church. God providing for the church through the church is the form in all through the New Testament, all through Paul's letters. And I just want to know there are at least three ways that we see the church provide for the church. We see God provide for the church through the church. Three ways. Pastors, planting, and the impoverished. Pastors, planting, and the impoverished. God provides for the church by providing pastors and providing pastors with income through the church. And this, this goes back to the Old Testament example of the, the Levites, those who were priests. They didn't have a job. They didn't go out into the fields. They didn't, they didn't work fields. They weren't shepherds. Their provision was from the body of Israel, from the people of Israel. Well, we follow this example in the New Testament as well, as we're taught. Why does the church, local churches, pay their pastors to be their pastors as a full-time job if they can do it? Because we have this example in the New Testament. Paul instructs the church about caring for pastors in 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 to 18, Paul says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in, whose work is in preaching and teaching. Next, Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 5, or 25, verse 4, which says, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. That's the way Paul uses Deuteronomy to refer to pastors. Paul's next words, and your Bibles might be in red because most people think that he's quoting Jesus when Jesus says in Luke 10, 7, the worker deserves his wages. And anyone who receives instruction, Paul says in Galatians, anyone who receives instruction in the word must also share all good things with his instructor. We have the multiple evidence in the New Testament of Paul teaching that the way God provides for the church to have the word of God continually preached in the church is for the church to provide for that pastor to preach the word. So we have God providing his word for the church preached through the church. This means we ought to pay our vocational pastors. Not just because we're a 501c3, not just because we're set up as some nonprofit organization, but because we want them to dedicate their lives, their time to preparing the word, teaching the word, and pastoring the church. I just want you to think about it. Maybe about Providence that he's not here today. I just want you to think about Cal's life. What a joy it is for you to give to the church in order to support Cal's ministry. Newly married, newborn, moved to Austin, I mean, from New Jersey, so I know he's thankful to move to Texas, but week after week after week, he just keeps serving the word, discipling brothers. I'll tell you one of the things I see Cal doing. He's always walking out the door from the office to go see someone. He's meeting, he's helping with baptism, the Lord's Supper, and discipleship. We're supporting him financially when we give to the church. We're supporting my family financially. I've said this many times from the pulpit and in our members' meetings. 
the only income I've ever had in my entire life, in full-time job at least, has been from the church providing for the church. And God providing for the church through the church. Pastor's son grew up. The only income my, my father had, my mom was a teacher for many years, but our main income was from my father being a pastor and the church paying him. And now as an adult myself, coming through college and out of college, my only full-time job on this side of college has been in the church. I mean, everything I have has been God providing through the church. That's one of the reasons that we give regularly to the church and not just wait for a famine. Because this is one of the ways God provides for the church through the church. Pastors. The other one is church planting. Church planting. As Paul went throughout Rome and Greek territories, he did so by the support of the church. Paul went taking the gospel to places had never been, established churches there. That's expensive. I don't know if you ever traveled overseas. If you even tried to, maybe you didn't recently because it was so expensive. Uh, it's not cheap. I remember talking to Jesse Brandon when they were coming uh, from the UAE to have their time of furlough in the States, just listening to them talk about their plane tickets just to get here. It's expensive. How did Paul get from place to place to place to place all over Asia Minor? Through the church. The church helped him. Yeah, Paul and sometimes camped in places, and no pun intended, was a tent maker. But Philippians 1 tells us Paul got around because of the partnership of the church. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Your partnership meaning you helped me get there financially. Later, Paul says in Philippians 4, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent a fragrant offering, like worship to God, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Well, what's happening here? The church is sending out and partnering with church planting missions. God is providing for the church to do the purpose of the mission by the church. Isn't the form, the same example in chapter 11? God's provision comes through the church. I mean, I just don't even know where to begin talking about just in the past 12 years here at Millwood how God has provided for missionaries overseas. Aside from the ongoing, regular, monthly support that we send to the UAE, sometimes to Acuna, and to the International Mission Board, which sends missionaries all over the world. Aside from those things that we do regularly, monthly, to help those pastors be there in those mission fields, we've bought vehicles. We've paid for doctor's appointments and plane tickets for missionaries, for surgeries, I remember the first trip that I took, the first time I ever went on a mission trip overseas, had to get a passport, it was to Kisnau, Moldova. We followed a medical team there that went from orphanage to senior citizen centers, and the doctors and surgeons were providing medical care. I was a 21, 22-year-old kid just going along for the ride, excited to be out of the country for the first time, trying to share the gospel with kids, playing a lot of kickball, and uh, trying not to get in trouble. When we went, I sent letters. I will never forget this. I didn't have any money. And my parents weren't just sitting around on oil money, so you know, I had to raise some money if I wanted to go on this mission trip. So I didn't know what to do. I just sent letters. I sent letters to some people in our church. I sent letters to our family and just said, this is what I'm doing. This is where I'm going. And I just started getting checks in the mail. <laughs> I'd never done that before. I just started getting checks in the mail. And I think the whole trip may cost maybe $2,000, maybe $2,500, maybe. I'm not going to tell you what year that was. 
But I remember having significantly more than I needed, and I just was floored, floored that people wanted to help with missions overseas. And I just have never forgotten that, that feeling, that experience of God providing for the church through the church. What a joy. That's what we do every time we give financially here. Every dollar that you give to Millwood Baptist Church gets split up between pastors, church planting of some kind, and the impoverished. Every dollar you give is going to help plant churches in some way or another. The last one is the impoverished. If you go back to Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about some of his interaction with the leaders in Jerusalem and the church there in Antioch where he was. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 7, On the contrary, when we saw that, that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that was in Antioch, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked through also me to mine for the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars... Uh, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave their right hand to the fellowship of Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to be circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. We can see this as an example back in Acts chapter 2 as well when the Spirit comes upon the church for the first time. Instinctively, people who are born with the Spirit are born again. People whom the Spirit has filled and come upon them. What do they do? They just start bringing their belongings. They start bringing their possessions to the apostles so that it said there was no one in the Christian community in Jerusalem who had any need. No one had need. Not everyone was rich, but no one had need. No one was going absolutely without. This happens all the time through Millwood Baptist Ministry. We've bought cars for people. We've sent trailers of food, truckloads full of food to Houston when, we, when there was a hurricane there, to Acuna when there was a tornado there, to Acuna again when there was an influx of immigrants there, hundreds and hundreds of immigrants that the church was taking up feeding. We've helped pay personal debts. We've helped pay hospital bills. We've paid for people's cleaning services. We've helped pay rent. We've helped pay electric bills. I just could God even know that I could even know what all has gone on. Here's what I want to say. Don't be afraid. God provides. God provides for the church, and he will do that through the church. Notice God sent word of the famine, but it was his church that supported the church, that knew about the famine. You, church. Listen, church. You are God's means of provision for the church. Not the government. Not some other organization. Not a trust fund. The church. You are God's means of providing providentially for the church. Pastors and planting and for the impoverished. You are the means. So thankful for our elders during the time of COVID to have this trust. And I'm not, I don't even remember where I voted on this. I'm happy to, per memory, say that I got outvoted. But we were given the opportunity during COVID to take money from the government, uh, a free loan. And my recollection is we just weren't convinced that it was free. <laughs> I think a lot of amens. Maybe we made the right decision. We weren't even worried about interest. 
I know the concern was that if we take money, this is helping and beginning the government thinking they can tell us what to do. And so I'm thinking giving's low, everyone's struggling. I mean, we're looking at a pretty good chunk of change here, what the government would give us as an organization, not just our staff as individuals. And our elders, I think, wisely and faithfully said, let's just not take that money. I don't even know if you would know that or remember that, that we made that decision. I don't know how public we were about that. I remember thinking, well, I guess this is what faith feels like because here we go. I mean, that was years ago now. Years. Has the Lord not been faithful? When you give to your church, you give to all those things. And you are God's means. You are in the middle of God knowing, caring, and providing for your pastors, for church planting, and for the impoverished. That's what God does, and it's what we do with Him. This is how we say it in our membership church covenant. If you're going to be a member of our church, this is the covenant that you make. We will contribute cheerfully and irregularly to support the ministry of the church, its expenses, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. And what Acts 11 is telling us is you don't have to be afraid to do that. Paul says it like this in Philippians 4. He, he thanks the church as we read that he's been received his full payment, but listen to what he says in the church in Philippi who has been so generous to him to give him more than he needs. Paul says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your knowing. We give you praise that you know. We give you praise not only that you know, but that you care. We give you praise, Father, that you providentially intervene in the world's affairs, nations and kings, wars, but also your local church and the needs of individual members of your church. We pray, Father, for some who might be here today who, who don't know you, who are not a part of a church and who might not be a part of the church because they've not trusted Christ. We pray that they would see and hear the testimony today and see your knowledge and your caring and your giving and the unity that comes through faith in Jesus and they would leave and today, even now, trust you for forgiveness of their sins and then go and trusting you to provide everything they need for now and forever. We pray that you would help us this week, Father, not be afraid. Help us be generous. Help us be attentive in all the things that we are facing, things that we lost, things that we feel like we need. Oh, Father, help us not be afraid, remembering that you will, you will in your time, and in your ways, through the church, you will provide. We love you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.